0: Welcome back to the Religions of the Ancient Mediterranean podcast. In this, the final episode in our Historical Jesus series, we're going to delve into a further historical role that existed in first century Israel, namely the role of the anointed king. Not all Judeans have an expectation of an anointed king like David, but some Judeans did. And we find this within literature, contemporary with Jesus and earlier, this idea of a kingly figure who comes to save Israel, usually from foreign domination. So I hope you enjoy this final episode in the series, and I hope you've enjoyed the series overall. So let's ask this next question. Was Jesus perceived as a king or an anointed king, a Messiah? We've just answered the question of was he perceived As a prophet, the answer was, with the prophet issue, that a good number of his contemporaries likely perceived him as a prophet and that he himself may have understood himself as proclaiming God's message in a particular way and having a special role. On this next question, though, we're less secure in answering yes to the idea that many contemporaries would view Jesus as a king. I'm not trying to say that no one contemporary with Jesus thought he was a king. I'm going to suggest to you that some may have but that the prophetic role the role as prophet was more prevalent. It's also worth reminding you something that we learned in an earlier series in the podcast that series on early Christian portraits of Jesus there we saw that each of the gospel authors who told or retold the story of Jesus tried to explain the meaning of Jesus in different ways but each in some way had this role of the Messiah bubbling up here and there in the narrative, or as central to the whole portrayal of Jesus, as with the Gospel of Matthew, for example. What we're not looking at today is the question of whether the Gospels portray Jesus as the Messiah after he has died and after they considered him to have been raised from the dead. Clearly they do in different ways and with different understandings of what a Messiah is. What we're concerned with here is the historical question and in applying historical methods to the question of what happened decades earlier during Jesus' own time. And on this issue, the prominence of the warrior model of the king, we do not have evidence of Jesus in the warrior mode that would suggest the contemporaries would naturally interpret him in that way. If he was viewed as a king in some context and by some people which there are indications of it was understanding that kingly role in a different manner let's talk about first of all what is a king or a messiah in first century israel because if you don't ask that question you're not going to be able to answer the question of whether jesus was one are you with this idea of what is a messiah or what is a king in the first century israel we once again have biblical models or types that sometimes pop into the heads of some Judeans, though not always. The biblical model of David in particular as the ideal king is attested in some Judean circles. And remember that there was a procedure, a ritual, of anointing a king symbolically to show that they were properly recognized as a king over the Israelites. And so this idea of being anointed, being a messiah, is part of the ritual involved in being acknowledged as a king and it sometimes was a ritual involved in priests being acknowledged to and being considered properly in their role but this Davidic model seems to be most prevalent now there are some passages in the Hebrew Bible that some Judeans focused on there are several passages like this one in Jeremiah chapter 23 the author is writing at a time where David is long gone David was a king centuries before Jeremiah. And yet, a figure like Jeremiah, a prophet here, talking about the idea that there would be a time when the kingship of David or the descendancy of David would be renewed in a certain way and that God would bring back Israel to the good old days and unite Israel once again. Remember, Jeremiah's writing in the time during the Babylonian takeover in 586 B.C. of Jerusalem and the exile of the Judean upper classes to Babylonia. So within that context of reuniting Israel, you have people like Jeremiah saying this, the days are surely coming, says Yahweh, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch and he shall reign as king and deal wisely and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In his days, Judah will be saved and Israel will live in safety. And this is the name by which he will be called Yahweh is our righteousness. You can also look at Isaiah 11 for another example in a Hebrew prophet, of this idea of looking forward to a figure like David that will reunite Israel and be king over Israel, and that God will establish that. So there's this notion among some Judeans. Those who did interpret these passages and did focus on these few passages were living in a time quite often where the land was occupied by foreign forces. First of all, you have the monarchy falling, the Babylonians being the foreign occupation, then the Persians being the foreign occupation, even though the Persians are a little nicer, the Hellenistic kings like Antiochus Epiphanes being foreign occupation, then the Romans, foreign occupation. So this context of constantly God's land, so to speak, in the perspective of Judeans, being ruled by some pagan force feeds sometimes this idea of looking forward to a king that God sets up as the king of Israel. A king like the good old days when David ruled over United Israel. Let's talk about some expectations for a Messiah or messiahs a little bit more here. Those who did look forward to a Davidic Messiah usually thought of him as a warrior who was going to slaughter the foreign forces. We do have evidence of this in Psalms of Solomon dates from probably the first century BCE, when the Romans have recently started to occupy Israel. In this context, the author of the Psalms of Solomon, who's a Judean, looks forward to a time when the foreigners will be out of here, when the foreign kings will no longer be ruling, and instead God will reestablish a Davidic king. The author of Psalms of Solomon probably has in mind things like the Jeremiah passage and the Isaiah passage I already mentioned. Here's a passage from the Psalms of Solomon, chapter 17. Behold, O Lord, and raise up unto them their king, the son of David, at the time in which you see, O God, that he may reign over Israel, your servant, and dress him with strength, that he may shatter unrighteous rulers, and that he may purge Jerusalem from nations that trample her down to destruction. He shall be righteous king taught by God. He will rebuke rulers and remove sinners by the might of his word. So this idea of a king who will slaughter the foreign occupying forces and get rid of the foreign kings who are ruling over God's country. This is the model of the Davidic Messiah. This is the most typical model of the Davidic Messiah. We have very few other models besides the warrior for what a Messiah would be like. The warrior element is primary in most of our evidence for Judeans who did think that a Davidic messiah would come. The Dead Sea sect provides further evidence of expectations of a messianic figure, of an anointed figure, or in this case of two anointed figures. The Dead Sea sect, remember, they're living out on the edge of the Dead Sea there. Around 190 BCE, they started to form as a group, and then they go out to the desert in the decades after that. So they're living there in the second century BCE and the first century BCE and into the first century CE. Remember that this particular group is apocalyptic. They do think God's going to intervene and that there's going to be a final battle that God wins. The war imagery is very prevalent for the Dead Sea sect in terms of what will happen when God finally intervenes. Some of the authors of writings that were used frequently by the Dead Sea sect, including the community rule, thought that there would be a prophet that would come just before God finally intervened, and that two messiahs, two anointed ones, would come shortly before or during God's final intervention. So a prophet and two messiahs. You always need to remember that different writings from the Dead Sea would be written by different authors. They don't all necessarily think precisely the same thing, even within that sect. But we do have a consistent expectation of a prophet and two messiahs. One Messiah is the Messiah of Aaron, a priestly anointed one, a priestly Messiah. The other is the Messiah of Israel, a kingly Messiah. Those scholars who focus on studying these ideas of Messiah in the Dead Sea Scrolls emphasize very strongly that the kingly Messiah plays a diminutive role in relation to the priestly Messiah. In other words, the priestly Messiah is very important for this group. The kingly messiah, not so much. But they expect both to be there. Does anyone have an inkling as to why they might focus on a priestly messiah? These guys were partly priests. Remember that the main leader, the teacher of righteousness that you learned about, was a priest who was upset about the way the temple was running, who had a run-in with another priest, probably in connection with the Hasmoneans as well, and that they went out to the desert to get away from the temple that wasn't being run right and look forward to a restored temple. The fact that they are priests, some of them, would suggest why there would be a fundamental role for a priestly Messiah in the end times. Even within the Dead Sea Scrolls, though, beyond that point I've just made, that there's some consistency in what they expect. If you look at their talk of Messiahs and material from the Hebrew Bible about Messiahs, there's even variety among the Dead Sea Scrolls. Let's look ahead to some contemporary people that are viewed as kings or Messiahs. Josephus, once again, is our principal source for this. And once again, he doesn't like just about every one of these groups he's talking about. He concludes the discussion of each of these with this comment, which frames why he's been talking about it. He's talking about the period of Herod the Great's death right now. And he says this, Judea was infested with gangs of bandits. Whenever seditious bands came across someone suitable, that person could be set up as king, eager for the ruin of the commonwealth doing little damage to the Romans, but causing extensive bloodshed among their own countrymen. There you have his value judgment. And every one of these instances is going to be someone he doesn't like, who sets themselves up as king, who supposedly have terrible motivations, and who are all about bloodshed and cause all kinds of problems, and the wonderful Romans deal with them properly and get rid of them. Let me read you one example. Judas, the son of Ezekias. There was Judas, son of the brigand chief Ezekias. This Judas, when he had organized at Sepphoris in Galilee, a large number of desperate men raided the palace. Taking all the weapons that were stored there, he armed all of his followers and made off with all the goods that had been seized there. He caused fear in everyone by plundering those he encountered in his craving for greater power and in his zealous pursuit of royal rank. He did not expect to acquire this prize by being virtuous, but by the vantage of his superior strength. Each of these cases, Josephus has a person who shouldn't be a king claiming to be a king, lower class in each case, a servant of Herod, a shepherd, a throngus, and Judas, the descendant of a bandit in in Josephus' view. All of them claim to be a king, have a considerable following that shows you others considered them kings, and who actually engaged in military activity, every single one of them. If you claim to be a king, you can pretty well expect that military activity will be involved. Violence will be involved. Even if each of these incidents are not historically accurately told to us by Josephus, he has to tell stories in a a way that would be believable to his audience. Namely, that there were lower class claims to being a king and that there were military activities by these popular kings. So this is the context in which the label king should be understood. Let's talk about Jesus now. Was Jesus viewed as a king or a royal messiah by contemporaries? First of all to note is this. In a broad sense, we can say there are definitely political implications of some of the likely teachings of Jesus that we've already established. What we know most securely, historically, is that Jesus taught about the kingdom of God. He's always talking about the kingdom. What kingdom doesn't have a king? So there's potential, therefore, if Jesus is talking about a kingdom, there's potential for contemporaries to say, well, maybe this guy thinks he's a king. He's always talking about a kingdom. Right? There's potential for that. The passion narratives, the narratives of the arrest and trial of Jesus, consistently have this as an element that in the narratives... The high priests, when they have a trial of Jesus, the talk is about him having claims or being viewed as a Messiah, as a king. And when Pilate talks about it, there's claims or views of contemporaries thinking of him as a king. Now, how to assess those, it's difficult to know, but it's worth mentioning that that recurs in different sources. Not only that, but both John and Mark, two independent sources, have this idea of a label being put on the cross of Jesus, King of the Judeans. So what we can say is that in a mocking way, Jesus was characterized, likely, as a king when he was hung on that cross. Now, whether or not contemporaries during his life focus mainly on this idea of him being a king is another issue altogether. There's no sign of military activity on the part of Jesus. And that is the primary thing that would lead someone to label someone a king. If you're a king, you've got to lead an army. And especially if you want to be an anointed king like David, well, you have to be a warrior who's going to wipe out the foreign forces. Jesus doesn't fit the bill, does he? Jesus just does not fit the bill from the evidence we have regarding what a king would be expected to do in first century Judea. In general, the historical Jesus did not fit the Davidic warrior models that we find in some contemporary Judean writings. Psalms of Solomon, for example, the one I read to you. The things that the kings and Josephus do are not what Jesus did. He has no armies. It's not likely that the model of the royal Messiah would be the first thing to jump into contemporaries' heads when seeing Jesus. If some contemporaries did interpret Jesus as a king or a messiah, they would need to understand that royal, kingly, messiah role in quite a different manner than the most prevalent picture we get from contemporary evidence in Jesus' time. Let's finish off with a few words about Jesus' arrest, trial, and death. We began, in a way, the study of the historical Jesus with one of the most secure things we knew about him. The most secure thing we know about him attested by multiple sources, including non-Christian sources, was that Jesus was executed under Pontius Pilate. Remember how we began this whole discussion? And now we're back to that. Now as to the details of how the death of Jesus is described in the Gospels, we can't go beyond using historical methods, there's not much more we can say beyond what we already just said, that Jesus was executed under Pontius Pilate, that the mode of execution was the most brutal mode of execution available. What's interesting is that you can look at contemporaries again to understand, to some degree, how it would be that Jesus would get into trouble, and how it would be that he would maybe be killed as a result of getting into trouble. All of the examples of prophets and kings, or Messiahs, in Josephus' narratives illustrate the point very well. Just about every one of them gets killed. But let's look at Jesus son of Hananiah, the other Jesus. He's living after the historical Jesus that we're looking at here. He's living in the 60s CE, but I want to draw attention to the story of Jesus, son of Hananiah, as an illustration of the process that might happen if you get yourself into trouble. And this guy gets himself into trouble by saying negative things about Jerusalem during festivals. The other historical Jesus gets into trouble saying things about the temple and maybe doing things about the temple during festivals. So that's the degree to which this is useful as a framework in which to make some sense of Jesus' death. This one comes from The Jewish War, Book 6, 300 to 309. Four years before the war, Josephus says, when the city was enjoying great peace and prosperity, a certain Jesus, a certain Joshua, son of Hananiah, a simple peasant from the lower classes, came to the festival at which all Judeans traditionally make tents to God. Tabernacles festival. Standing in the temple, he suddenly began to cry out, a voice from the east, a voice from the west, a voice from the four winds, a voice against Jerusalem and the temple, a voice against bridegrooms and brides, a voice against the whole people. He's yelling statements against the temple claiming to be a prophet, the God is speaking to him and he's speaking negatively about the temple here during the festival time. He went walking around all the byways with his dirge day and night. Some of the gentry, the aristocracy, irritated by his ominous words, seized the man. He got in trouble. The priests, the priestly class, the aristocracy, are the ones who are upset about the guy and get him arrested and beat him severely. But without a word in his own defense, even to those who struck him, he incessantly repeated his cries. Thus, the authorities, thinking his agitation had a supernatural cause, which indeed it did, Josephus thinks, took him to the Roman governor. There, despite being lashed to the bone, he did not plead for mercy or shed a single tear, but, as best he could, mourned with each blow. Woe to Jerusalem! And when Albinus, the governor, questioned him as to who he was and where he came from and why he cried out like this, he said nothing at all, but only continued to repeat his cry of woe until Albinus, thinking him a madman, released him. He could have killed him. He released him. He interpreted him as, this guy's just crazy. Does he have a following? This Jesus doesn't have a following. Most people are perceiving him as crazy but he's saying, woe to Jerusalem, woe to the temple during festival times. This gets him in trouble, but he doesn't have a following. He's just considered a crazy guy, and he gets let loose. This other Jesus says statements about the temple, does actions that symbolically destroy the temple at Passover time, gets in trouble with the high priests and the priestly classes, the aristocracy, has a hearing before them according to the Gospels, then gets put from that position to being put before the Roman governor. The Roman governor hears him. Maybe he could have let him go, just like this other governor let this other Jesus go, but instead thought, this guy has a following. This guy's a lot like the Thutuses and the Thronguses, that us Roman governors, along with the aristocracy here in Judea, are concerned to get rid of when they come up. This guy is a potential danger to Roman order. What better thing to do than to execute him as a bandit, and make a public example of people like him who lead a following and make statements negatively about the temple during festival time. And this is what happened to Jesus of Nazareth. Executed as a bandit, it seems. What's a bandit from a Roman perspective? Anyone of the lower classes who does something you don't like. We already know that from Josephus. Bandit is a catch-all category. It's the upper class's attitude that someone is a bandit. In the narratives of the Gospels, when they come to arrest him, Jesus says, why are you coming after me like I'm a bandit? And who is he hung between even in the Gospel narratives? Bandits. How do you execute people that are considered uh, dangerous to the Roman order, who are considered bandits by the Roman order? You use the most brutal form of execution because it's also the most exemplary one. You hang them on a cross in public and humiliate them. Crucifixion is considered the most brutal and humiliating form of execution, and it's used as an example. Let me just read you a passage from another Roman author about crucifixion. This is from Pseudo-Quintilian, but this idea is also reflected in Josephus and in other sources. Whenever we crucify the condemned, the most crowded roads are chosen, where the most people can see and be moved by this terror, for penalties relate not so much to retribution as to their exemplary effect. That concludes this, the final episode in this series. So much more could be said, but I hope you've enjoyed at least these few moments I've been able to share with you some of the historical issues surrounding the historical Jesus.